Lawmakers tackle long-term care solutions in South Dakota with a strong foundation of previous studies on the subject. From SDPB Radio, it's Tuesday, May 23rd. This is In the Moment. Coming up this hour, South Dakota Senator Gene Hunhoff is with us. We'll talk about outcomes of previous attempts to address an aging population's needs. We'll also ask what's new in the story as legislators tackle the topic afresh. Talon Bazil is with us for the opening of the Oglala Lakota Art Space. We'll talk art and music, culture and collaboration. We explore South Dakota drive-in movie theaters with SDPB's Greg Beasley. Plus, supporting women and trans women in music. That's coming later in the hour. We're broadcasting live today from SDPB's Kirby Family Studio in Sioux Falls. I'm Lori Walsh. You're in the moment. News is first. Yesterday, we brought you the story of an educational hive everyone can visit at the South Dakota Discovery Center. Today, we're looking at beekeeping as a business. How does the honey from a South Dakota hive find its way to store shelves and then to your cabinet? Spencer Huff is a local apiarist or beekeeper, and he extracts his own honey and sells it through his small hobby, Hup's Honey, and he's with us on the phone. Spencer, welcome. Thanks for being here. Good. Tell us a little bit about how you got into beekeeping. Take us back to the first inspiration. Uh, Remind. Kind of bothered me for a while because he got into beekeeping about two years ahead of me, and he kept saying, "Oh, it's so awesome! You should do it." And I thought it was kind of silly. I didn't really care too much about it, and then. (laughs) Uh, he kind of negotiated a, a thing where he said, I'll buy your high back if you don't like it, give it a try. Um, I gave I'm finding myself sitting out there on a stump watching the bees go in and out of the hive, and uh, I've never looked back since. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about um, finding a place to distribute the honey then. Was that something that happened right away? Did it take an amount of time? When did you start thinking, hey, this is something I can share with others? Well, um, it originally started out where I just was giving out it as gifts, and um, it just slowly got to the point where people were asking me, hey, can we buy some from you? And um, it just kind of turned into where I said, well, you know, I, I can't make a living off of it, but at least I can kind of share and um, kind of my passion. I really. Um, really enjoy just tasting different types of honey. There are 300 different types of honey in the world. The world. There's technically, There's technically and more. And more. Uh, uh, oh, oh, I'm getting, <laughs> I'm getting a cock, cock. We're going to work on that. I know that's really hard oh, to... Uh, yeah, okay, there we go. <laughs> uh, and uh, it's, uh, it's kind of fun to taste different types of honey, so I like to have uh, different bee yards, apiaries, um, in different locations where not only do I get to taste different types of honey and share different types of honey with different flavors and colors, that uh, I also don't put pressure onto the native bees, which are really important. Um, there are over 4,000 different types of species of bees in the United States. And if I'm not mistaken, I think there's 400 species of bees that are native to South Dakota. And they're just as important, if not more important, than the honeybees. And uh, they're starting to see them having issues as well as honeybees um, with health issues and decline of, of numbers. 
how do you protect your hives against the natural vulnerabilities? The naturals of what? Vulnerabilities from any, you know, things oh, that can happen to the, yeah. the sensitive honeybee. Yeah. Oh, boy. It's, you know, it's a, a slow progress of learning and, and testing different things. Uh, varroa mites are uh, quite destructive, I'll tell you what. Um, that's a constant battle. I like to use natural remedies like Formic Pro, the Formic Acid Patty, uh, to kind of try to knock the numbers down. Uh, splitting the hives and letting them do a natural uh, reset where normally a hive will do what's called a swarm and the queen will leave with about half of the hive and go find a new home. They leave behind queen cells and that helps to break up the brood cycle of the varroa mite and that helps the numbers break down. So I really like to try to imitate nature and use that um, knowledge that the bees have, have done to um, be able to help help that uh, mite problem. Mm. But then um, having it where I don't like to put my beehives anywhere within five miles of that hive, a radius that um, they will fly to to get to the, the floral sources. And so I like to have abundance of flowers nearby um, that helps to decrease the stress on them and, uh, and I also will designate a couple hives per year so I can build up the, uh, the frames of honey and I, right before winter time I will go into all the hives and I will assess where they're at with their um, amount of honey stores to get them through the winter and I will give them new, new full frames of honey and that way uh, I don't have to feed them sugar, whereas a lot of beekeepers will use sugar, and it's not a horrible thing, but it's not the best thing. And uh, in an emergency situation, feeding them a honey syrup is um, to get them through, and at least they don't starve to death is, is, I guess, better. But the best way I, I've kind of, kind of found is that um, designating certain hives to create the winter stores of food um, has seemed to really help my uh, honeybee's health. Hmm. I love that you used to be like, no, nah, this isn't that interesting. And now clearly <laughs> it is It is fascinating to the rest of us to hear you talk about it. And tell us a little bit before we let you go, the Bashful Bison Market in Rapid is holding the Honey at the Market event Saturday, June 3rd, 11.30 a.m. to 2 p.m. local time and you're going to be there to answer questions and offer your honey. Tell us a little bit about the value of like meeting someone who's making the food that ends up on your table and for you meeting your customers face to face. Well, I love to, to share everything. And, you know, the, the old saying goes that if you ask 10 beekeepers a question, you're going to get 12 answers. <laughs> so, you know, I don't know everything and I'm still learning and, and um, it's kind of fun to even talk to people that have only done it for a year and they will say, hey, I, I you know, tried this and it really worked and it's kind of fun to uh, be able to talk and then you find out that, oh wow, maybe I should try that this coming year yeah. um, to learn and I feel like uh, we're all a big community just like a beehive and everybody has their own specific job for the better good and I think that communicating between people and, and um, sharing ideas, sharing goods, and uh, 
being able to eat some honey with uh, some bread and everything is also uh, a fun little thing to do, and yeah. um, it's great to to be a part of this community. It makes all the difference in the world. Spencer Hupp, beekeeper, thank you so much for joining us. Um, we really appreciate your time. Likewise. Have a good day. You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. Well, in the past five years, several South Dakota nursing homes have closed their doors for good. There are currently about a dozen at risk for closure. The state legislature is devoting a summer committee to study the issue and explore possible solutions. The committee had their first meeting this morning. Senator Jean Hunhoff is a Republican representing Clay and Yankton counties. She's also the committee chair of the South Dakota Legislature's Study Committee on Sustainable Models for Long-Term Care. Now, Senator Hunhoff, who was then Representative Hunhoff, introduced a bill in 2006 to study the state's long-term care system, and that bill got a lot of support. So this is not the first time she is looking at the report. She's seen the outcomes. We're going to talk to her about what's next. Senator Hunhoff, welcome back to In the Moment. Thanks for being here. Oh, thank you, Lori. It's a pleasure. Great timing. Yes. Are there other things about the previous studies and some of the outcomes that you think, before we talk about what's going to happen this summer, that are particularly noteworthy? Well, I think uh, what was noteworthy were they had made recommendations and only a few got adopted. One had to do making beds available at that point in time. We had a moratorium, but if there were free beds available and there were some facilities asking for more, we simplified that process so they could do it. And um, the other thing is um, developing a, a resource, Dakota Resources, which is to help people that are looking for alternatives for long-term care to have a one-call center so they can get connected to find out what facilities, what services, how they could engage in that. I think those were probably the, the biggest things that came out of that. And in the interim, we've had some other um, opportunities that legislature has provided. One was um, access critical nursing homes so that in those areas where there were none that we could be able to have some of those facilities available still to serve. And I think we also created an incentive program if there were some combining of services and facilities to try to regionalize. No one is taking advantage of that. Probably the one thing that didn't come out, and I know you didn't ask this, was one of the things was infrastructure, and that will be one of the groups that we'll be looking at. You know, these facilities are over 50, 60 years old, and they're not designed for the kind of delivery system that we're looking at now. So, you know, there were some good things that happened, but very limited. We were slow to take action because they involved dollars. Not that anything's changed, but I think we're right at a critical point that we need to look at what do we need to be able to have access for our elderly for a continuum of care services. So there were things that were not politically viable in 2006 or 2017, you know, the, some of the big years where these were really looked at in depth. And of course, people are talking, you know, long-term care every session. But were they just not politically viable because of funding? Did people not vote for them just because of the money? Or were the other um, sort of points of view about elder care that you think are going to need to be addressed in future sessions? You know, I think at that time, one of it was the resources, certainly, if we could do that. And it's always been with Medicaid funding in the sense that where's your priority? Is it 
funding the providers that are doing the services and each year certainly their costs escalate and that continues to be the focus so um, this was pre-COVID, and so that seemed to be the priority out there that they can do. We'll, we'll continue to try and support them, and, you know, what's a good reimbursement, you know, if they would get a 2% or a 3%, never really achieving to get that 100% reimbursement as we were able to do this year. So I think those stepped up to the plate, and the infrastructure was not because it's very expensive. This morning I heard that it's about... 300,000 per bed if you were going to build a new facility now. You know, that certainly is in a way insurmountable. So I think it was what's more realistic. And at that point in time, it was continuing to be able to provide the re- providers with some significant reimbursement for the services. So before we get into how this structure, because I'm really curious, you know, you mentioned infrastructure and some of the other things that this summer study is going to look into. As I was looking through the documents and preparation, there were a few things that stood out to me. And one was this idea of the moratorium, and hopefully you can help me understand this better, being a way to keep costs down and to encourage a market correction of, you know, more services in communities that, as I understand it, are home care services that pre-nursing home stage. You know, you need someone to do your laundry. You need someone to help with medication, someone to come into your home before you need that full care. And that didn't seem to go, the, the market is not corrected in that we still don't have those services in communities. Everything I just said there, do I understand how this works or am I missing a big piece of this? No, that's correct. The moratorium was put into effect because there were, you know, nursing beds going up all over and they weren't being filled and you're correct, the, the home care. Um, at that point in time when the moratorium in place, the idea was to get some of those services. But again, home care and some of the community-based and the assisted living sort of came out of that. But the home care was traditionally a, a Medicare service, and it was a short term. And now we were starting to look at people aging in their homes. That demand is starting to come up. And as I said, this was all pre-COVID. And I think the interest now is post-COVID because what we've seen is individuals are not returning to long-term care. They are wanting to stay in their homes. But now we've got the staffing shortage, which is impacting every kind of delivery system that's out there. And that's going to be a major piece of discussion. You know, that certainly when you're doing home-based services, you've got to have the staff to provide those, and you're talking probably in the rural areas, distance and time of travel certainly impacts. So I think at that point in time when the moratorium, they thought things would develop and evolve. They didn't come to fruition, but COVID pushed that button, and now life goes on in a much different manner. Yeah. So speaking of that, that staffing shortage, what is this, 15, 17 years ago, I'm reading, this is urgent, this is imminent. We need to do something to incentivize staffing and nothing really has been done. Do we still need to do something to incentivize staffing? It seems like it's the same song. Well, I think that when you want to incentivize staffing, you have to have people that are prepared in healthcare, be that nurses, LPNs, and CNAs. And I think, you know, I guess this is only my own observation because I am a nurse. And when I went into nursing, which says how long ago, there were really two professions. You could either be a teacher or you could be a nurse. That world now has changed dramatically, that there's all kinds of options out there. And traditionally being a female profession, it is now getting more males in there because I think the compensation and the ability for upward mobility has come into play. And so if you don't have as many people going to school, it's how are you getting people 
to go to school and become uh, a nurse. And I think the other thing is the reality. I grew up in an area where, you know, 724, you worked day and nights, and, you know, you had your weekends maybe every other when I was out there. That is different. This new generation is looking at, you know, I want a daytime job. I don't want to work nights. I don't want to work weekends. So you're trying to create a workforce, and that's really the biggest issue. How do I get people interested to go into the field, and then how do I get them interested to do nights and to do weekends? That's a whole different play that comes into. So I think it's, it's, it's broader than, you know, we have the nursing shortage, and we've always had it. It's had its ups and downs. But as you can see, and I think COVID, the change in how you deliver care with COVID nowadays and what the, the nurse has to do to carry out that role in that field is so much more different than pre-COVID. It is becoming challenging even to recruit them into the profession. And I think you're seeing a lot of things that are trying to be done both at the state level and at the schools preparing nurses. How do we get people in those programs? Yeah, I'm curious, and one of the reports mentioned they couldn't really study this, but they wanted to know, where are people getting services? How are elders who are at home and are not showing up in the nursing home beds and they are not accessing services because they don't exist or there aren't enough of them, or maybe they don't know about what's available. Who's helping them? And the answer has to be f- family members. Are that, that has to have a huge economic impact in, in South Dakota. Um, what are your gut instincts about how these services are being delivered right now in communities? Well, my gut instinct is this. You're absolutely right. Families are taking on that that family member. They're providing that direct care. And I will also say, um, yes, I live in Yankton, but my ties are to Tabor, a small rural community. Mm -hmm. There are neighbors that are helping those individuals. Those communities are recognizing who the individuals are. They're volunteering. They're going over there. They're doing some of the services. They might be helping with personal care. So it's really non-paid services of a caring family and a caring community that are surrounding those individuals. But I think, though, there are more and more rural care or home care services going in the community. Certainly, the, the South Dakota has the um, uh, homemaker program and maintenance nursing. You're seeing an escalation in those numbers that those services are being delivered. And you're seeing we've got 35 certified home care programs in South Dakota, which is greater than when I was delivering services when I was in the program. So we are seeing a growth, but the challenge is the rural area because distance is the problem. If I have to send a nurse out to drive 40 miles, round trip is 80 miles, that takes, you know, an hour to do the visit, an hour, an hour and a half for the drive. You know, it's how you can continue to do that. So then it goes back to the reimbursement. But I think we're seeing more, but I will agree with you, families are doing. I think the other thing that's happening is that the people are maybe moving to where their children are. If I'm living in an urban area, and I'm, you know, Yankton being an urban area, I see a lot of my Tabor people that I know out there are now moving to Yankton and retiring because they're close to their health care and they can get some of those home services because you've got a provider right in that community and you're not talking the distance. Yeah. All right. What happens with this summer study? How is it divided up? What kinds of areas are you looking into this year? You know what? We've concluded upon we're going to have five work groups that really have a focus and each have a part. We'll look at what the regulatory side is, what's existence, what could we do to make it better so it's easier so we can get those services. Looking at workforce, certainly, are there changes we need to look at? Part of the challenge is anything is that the Medicare, the feds, have control over a lot of the services and you have to comply with those. So you can't change the feds, but you can change some things in Medicaid. 
The other thing we're going to be looking at is the infrastructure and the locations of all these facilities that are out there. Looking at innovation, what are some new ideas that are out there that we're looking, and then looking at community-based services, how do we have more interface so you do a continuum of care? I know there's been a lot of discussion. We did some funding this year for adult day services. You know, how do you get all that meshed in so you've got sort of a one-stop provider that can address some of those in a community? And then we'll come back after those work groups, get them the resources they need to try to see if we can find some kind of consensus. And then the other portion is what will it cost for this model? And the final end of the day, it's the model is just going to be a recommendation. It's not going to be a mandate. So how do we incentivize providers that they look at this model and if it could work for their area? And again, what we're trying to achieve, more community-based, more having the right level of care that's needed in those communities if they need long-term care, the assisted living, the other um, types of styles we've got out there that are programmed. You mentioned $300,000 per bed in a new facility, which is, of course, quite prohibitive, and we started out talking about the moratorium. What's the status of bed trading when a facility closes? Are those beds available for somebody else to add to? Is that a $300,000 bed? Help us understand how bed trading works. You know, when a facility closes, they have within 18 months that they can reallocate those beds. Let's say they want to move into a different facility or partner. Those are still available to them. After that point in time, they go back to the state. So any provider can ask. And there are beds that are available right now. I believe we heard this morning there's over 400 beds available. So if ABC long-term care thought, I need five more beds, they can just go to the state. But, you know, they have the operational cost. Are they going to have to expand or you know, what are they going to have to do to be able to take those additional beds on or buy a facility? But they are available, and it's just a matter of asking the state for those beds. So the cost is into the operational aspect if you were doing new building and, you know, what it's going to cost operationally. But, you know, if you're an existing or you're rehabbing, you could get those beds, but it's up to you operationally how you're going to make that work. You mentioned COVID several times as as sort of a reset. Um, Infrastructure has to be... COVID resilient in some ways now that we know what we know about the possibility of a pandemic and the challenges that happen in long-term care when there is, I mean, it's like a whole new way of looking at infectious disease. And certainly these facilities have been looking at infection control since the beginning of the facilities. What are some of the things that people need to keep in mind for how COVID has changed this conversation? Well, not only COVID, you've got to have, you know, even looking at private rooms and how you set Mm -hmm. up those rooms. Just look, if you've got a structure that's 50, 60 years old, and if you look at most long-term care, they're flat. You know, they're not designed to what your newer facilities are. Even for staffing, I mean, how do you get, can you get more things in a residence room that they need that's individualized to them? How do you set up your nursing stations? How do you set up your food service? These were back in the days where you had rooms where you doubled, sometimes you even quadrupled. And so now you're looking more, as I said, a private room that can be self-contained, but yet is very attractive and meets the needs and, you know, easier. Your workforce, you're not going to have all young. You're going to have people my age out there. How do I adapt to somebody that's 60 years old so that they can have an easier time in providing the services? Those are all things that need to be considered. All right. Fascinating stuff. We look forward to following it all summer and into the next session. Senator Jean Hunhoff, thank you so much for the update. Thank you. Have a great day.
You are listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm your host, Lori Walsh. A first-of-its-kind art space opened this weekend in Pine Ridge. The building is dedicated to facilitating and uplifting the work of indigenous artists and culture bearers. That includes people like Talon Bazil Ducheneau. And he is in the house today. He's <laughs> a hip-hop artist and program coordinator consultant for the Wechakpi Olowan Music Program and Studio. That studio operates out of the Oglala Lakota Art Space in partnership with First People's Fund and Playing for Change Foundation. The music you just heard was Santi Witt's song, Better Days, and that was recorded at the studio, mixed and mastered by Basil. Talon Basil, welcome. Thanks for being here. Hi, thank you so much for having me. It's uh, so once again, it's a privilege. Yeah, and I'm already like, okay, we need you to have, you know, we'll have you back on next time because we have to talk about all this music <laughs> too. <laughs> but let's talk about the space first of all. How long has that yeah. been incubating? Man, um, longer than I've been involved, that's for sure. And I've been involved for quite a quite a while now. Kind of um, almost like. Uh, you know, chomping at the bit to be able to do things like this where we can, you know, tell people about it and talk about, you know, what is now in the near future for us and even in the present. Um, yeah, it's it's been wonderful to see not only that space come to life, but to have the privilege of being a part of the music program, um, which is also a studio uh, free of use to community members and native allies and allies and things like that. Um, it's, it's, it's just been a blessing to, to witness. Yeah. For people who are new to the area, I think it's important to mention, you know, more than 26,000 tribal members in Pine Ridge. A lot of them are young and 30% say we're artists. That is a huge community identifier to say we are musicians. We are traditional artists. We are spoken word artists. We are painters. Um, what is it like to have that kind of passion, desire, and identity as artists, but limited space to express it, limited access to the tools that you need? That's got to be huge. Right. It, and, you know, it's it's crazy you say 30% because I feel like there are so many other Lakota, Dakota, Nakota people, and even of other tribes who who are indeed artists but don't yeah. see themselves that way at all. So there's right. the 30% who, like, are willing to, like, okay, I am, <laughs> after they've done it for so many years, right? And and then the the many, many, many who just don't get the opportunity to even take that idea seriously. Um, so looking on my own background, I'm from Crow Creek. I'm from Eagle Butte. I grew up in those two places. And throughout my years growing up in those two places, there was, you know, pretty much legitimately nothing for us. Uh, maybe like some youth programs or places that you could go to if maybe you were a good student or you had special help, but a lot of us slipped through the cracks. And many of us who are musicians, artists, um, whatever medium of you know creativity and performance, any of those things, we, we didn't have that. And, and even up to, you know, when I came back from uh, Philadelphia from college, uh, I I went back to Fort Thompson and uh, my Misun now my Misun uh, Bobby Bobby J, um, who I ended up mentoring and recording his first albums and stuff. Um, at the time when I came back, he was telling me he was people were trying to charge him a hundred dollars a song just to record, not even in a professional setting. Wow. Um, 
So, you know, I can only imagine what it's like in other tribes and communities up to this point and the scarcity mindset that comes from that and affects us all, which creates a, a form of lateral oppression that I'm sure our oppressors love, right? But something like this, I feel, is like such a, a positive step in the right direction, not just for, you know, Oglala Res and, and Kyle, but for all of the Reses, because I feel like, you know, we already have uh, uh, relatives from different tribes wanting to come and use our studio and trying to find the gas money to do it and figure that stuff out. And I feel like eventually the other tribes are going to follow suit and there's going to be one of these in every tribe or, or multiple of them, rather. Yeah. I want to play a little bit of this song, Worth It, because it gets to exactly what you're saying when you say, like, hey, our oppressors love this. Um, and it can mm-hmm. be arduous to get to the finish yeah. line with, a, with an album. I'm going to ask you about the album in a moment, but first, here is Worth It. Like more please build strength gave thanks jason Voorhees made it out of hell stood tall through the quarries now it's time to make it to my 40s every decade looking all around to a decreasing class barely had 2010 subtract you could do the math my youth was matched with breaking bad in real life chaos and disorder went to war in those nights still all right ancestors went to worse ice in college as an op to break the curse it went crazy when I made it back to struggle. Mad humble, new purpose, new pieces to the puzzle. My mind stayed as hurting, remembering times where peers didn't deserve it. Standing as an uncle today, I'm determined. Every day alone in a way was mad worth it. And if it ain't worth it, I'm a man. All right, tell us about this new album. Yeah, so this <laughs> new album is called Dopa. Um, as much as you know that that we talked to alone on studio is there it, it's flourishing and and artists are starting to use it and finish their albums but um i myself i want to stay active and, and keep going um and, and being an example of you know trying to invest in your art and your craft and, and and hustling the right way and so um dopa is a four-track ep that i recorded out in philadelphia uh near my alma mater but at a studio who's very much like the one that i work for now which is you know a, a community centered you know the, the samori coles and, and mike Moore, the producer they're you know really community teaching driven oriented people and, and i so i wanted to support them you know in, in that way but also to use it as an opportunity like in that song worth it that just played the whole thing is really about my four years leaving but rather instead of the so much of the struggle of it the the strength of it i've talked so much about struggle and i've been on the show before talking about struggle but i wanted to show people a, a more like buffalo side of me like a strength side of me it throughout all of this because you know i've i've been i, I haven't been through everything and there's people who've been through worse than me but i'm proud of of what i've overcome and, and the fact that you know much like how this studio is trying to serve artists who may slip through the cracks or not get the resource or the the recognition i have you know dozens upon dozens of really close people to me who had such art in them and left this world way too early and people who i even wanted to bring to this studio 
so you yeah. know in in continuing my own art i feel like i'm honoring them in that way and i want to influence younger artists and younger native people rather and, and people in oppression that you know throughout these tragedies and atrocities and the people we lose often the 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 urge is to you know go the wrong way because of that or you know is wallow in that and i feel it every day the urge to but i'm trying with all my might and everything i can to to honor their short lives or or the tragedy in in my moving forward in in the best way i possibly can and i don't know if if it's working or if it is good but you know i i try and i that's the part that i want to like hit in all my music you will never know how much it's working that's my that's my <laughs> mirror that i'm going to hold up to you like you're going to know a lot of it because people are going to tell you this but i can just tell you the way that you're inspiring people in the studio right now who are listening to you and all the people that we cannot see um, you are, of course, invited back, and we'll do more about the Oglala Lakota Art Space, which includes an artist-in-residence program, the recording studio, classroom space, um, the home base for Dances with Words. There's so many stories here that need uh, that the world needs to hear about, but Talon Bazil, Ducheneau, thank you so much for being here with us for this short time. We're going to take you uh, out to the break with a little bit of music, but thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you so much. You are listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. Well, before you could watch a movie with a click of the remote or a mouse, you had to drive to see one on the silver screen. Some of us still make that drive. And at some theaters, you could watch the latest release without even getting out of your car. But as my next guest can tell you, drive-ins are not a relic of the past. Greg Beasley is a producer for SDPB, and he worked on the documentary Dakota Life Detours, the Silver Screens of the Prairie as executive producer. He is sitting here with me in the Kirby Family Studio in Sioux Falls. Hey, Greg, welcome. Hey, Lori, thanks for having me. This is just a fun, nice story, but it's also a story about community service and economic development in communities. Tell us how many drive-in movie theaters still exist in South Dakota. So there's six still remaining Nice here in South Dakota. Uh, Miller, Gregory, Mowbridge, Hermosa, and Redfield. Nice. And you went to everyone, at least through, I mean, people, we, we, uh, we covered everyone. Mm -hmm. you took yep. a little road trip on this Dakota Life detours. Yeah. Um, what sort of similarities did you find? We saw a lot of great community development. Um, we shot the thing in about three weeks. Um, yeah. Brad Van Osdell and I decided, okay, let's do this thing. And we decided last July about the last week of July, and then I started looking at the schedule and realized that a lot of these are closing the first week of August as <laughs> kids go back to school. school. So uh, yeah. we shot all of them in about three weeks, and uh, we just noticed how people still love going to the movies. Yeah. How many people told you that this was like a childhood memory? They loved, they loved it because they were keeping something alive that they did in their childhood. That has to be 
a familiar tune. Oh, so much nostalgia out of this yeah. project. A lot of people said we loved when we loved this when we were kids, and now we want the next generation to experience, and hopefully generations on. One of the things that surprised me was how much time people spend. It's not just go watch a movie, leave. It's go watch the sunset, uh, take in a double feature, <laughs> have dinner, um, have the kids play in the playground. This is an event that that people want to hang out exactly. for a while at. Yeah, yeah. It's it's something that you can do a whole night of. It's just not just go watch the movie, go home. But you can get dinner. You can watch the sunset over Lake Oahe up in Mobridge. Yeah. Just such a pretty view up there. And play in the playground. There was quite a few different activities that you could do. Um, up in Miller, there was cows in the field. So you could the cows got to watch the movies too. <laughs> are people watching the movie? Or are they just hanging out and talking and socializing? How a much is, how much column is movie a, watching? Column B. I'd yeah. say probably about 75, 25. Um, yeah. The one thing that surprised me a lot is a lot of people would just come in and buy popcorn and or oh. just buy concessions and then yeah. be like, hey, we're here, support, we're going to drive through, grab a large bag of popcorn, and we're going to hit the road. Nice. How many of these theaters are family affairs themselves and the operations of them? So all of them now, uh, winter just sold, but I believe it was sold to a family. So um, all of them still going, still family affairs. Yeah. Um, what's at stake with the, you know, the, these sort of things providing something for a community? Um, maybe they're not going to be here forever. Maybe they are. Mm. Maybe this is just something that, that lasts and endures in certain communities in South Dakota as long as there's someone willing to do the work, someone who loves it. Um, what does it contribute to, to a community? I think it contributes, obviously, entertainment for the youth of the community. Yeah. You know, a lot of these are in the smaller communities here in South Dakota where there's something that you can do on the weekend in the summertime, you know, adds a little bit something and gives a lot of youth their first job, great sure. first job opportunities out there and, you know, tries and provides a little bit more to the communities that these drive-ins are in. Is this something you did as a child? Did you ever go to a drive-in movie when you were a kid? Uh, believe it or not, no. The first yeah. one I went to was uh, up in Miller when we went and shot the stories. Yeah, I think there was a place, and my memory, of course, because I was little, I think it was in Laverne, yep. Minnesota, yep. where we mm -hmm. would drive to and that you always got to wear your pajamas. Oh, yeah. And you got to sit in the car, and that was just the thrill. And I don't remember any of the movies. I remember the before-movie commercials, like the dancing hot dogs and mm -hmm. things like that. I don't remember the movies, probably because I fell asleep <laughs> <laughs> in my footy pajamas. But I could definitely um, and relate to the, the, the warmth of being in your family, being with your family in a car, and just watching the show yeah. and seeing your neighbors. Yeah, nice. We're going to put a link up to um, this uh, show on our website sdpb.org slash news but you can just go to sdpb.org and find Dakota Life Detours yep. um, drive-ins. Greg Beasley, executive producer, thanks so much for stopping by. Thanks, Lori.
The Women and Trans Musicians Network will have its first event in Rapid City this Thursday. That network seeks to identify, connect, mentor, and empower South Dakota's women and trans musicians. That Rapid City event will also feature two mentors as well as two mentees making their debuts. Morgan Carnes is part of the musical duo Humble Town. You've heard them on the show before. They're also the founder and director of the Women and Trans Musicians Network. Hey, Morgan, welcome. Thanks for being here. Hi, thank you so much for having us. And you and I were out at the, the Arts Council gathering last year, I think. <laughs> my brain is fuzzy right now, but I remember you coming up to me and I was sharing my love for Humbletown and you said this network was happening. I was so thrilled that this was happening. Tell us a little bit about how it's developed since the time I last talked to you. Yeah, so when I last talked to you, we had just started and... Um, when I first started it, it was because I wasn't seeing enough representation for non-male uh, musicians in the state. And I felt like I was kind of fighting against the wave. And I kept asking people why there weren't more non-male rep or musicians represented. And people said, well, they just aren't there. Hmm. I didn't believe them. <laughs> so I wanted to put together a directory to show people that there are indeed non-male musicians. Um, in that process, I realized that there actually um, is a serious lack of non-male musicians in our state. And so I asked myself, how can we address this? And so as part of the organization, we put together a mentorship program to offer free mentorship and lessons to people aspiring to be musicians. Yeah. And at this point, that's the thing that has been sort of the main focus, and it's been really awesome. Yeah, I want to bring Carrie McIntyre into our conversation. She's one of the musicians performing at the showcase. Carrie, welcome. Thanks for being here. Hi, thanks for having me. Give us a little um, update about what you're doing at the showcase first, and then we'll talk more about this network and, and what it means to you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, as one of the mentors um, of the program, um, I was asked just to do a 20-minute set along with um, a couple of other mentors, and then we'll have some mentees there as well. So um, I'm kind of, um, I'm a vocalist, and I'm kind of the queen of covers. I'm not as much of a songwriter, but I do love me a good cover. Um, <laughs> so when Morgan asked me to perform at this, I was like, hmm, what should I do? So I was kind of rounding out a bunch of my repertoire. I had it in front of me. Yeah. And I was like, why don't I choose female musicians that sparked the passion within me growing up with music. Nice. And so my set kind of consists of some of my all-time favorite female singer-songwriters like Linda Ronstadt, Joni Mitchell, mm. um, Annie Lou Harris, Aretha Franklin, and all of those amazing musicians. So, yeah, yeah so that's kind of what I'll be doing. I'll be, be performing some of their songs. And Carrie, and that... Then, um, go ahead. Yeah. No, go ahead. Oh, no. No, and then I was just going to say... And yeah, just to show the representation of how impactful female musicians are and can be. Yeah. Do you remember some of those experiences where, because I want to get back to this point that Morgan's making about, you know, mm -hmm. representation matters. You have to, you know, see or hear someone. You don't have to, but it's sure helpful <laughs> if you see and hear people like you on screen, on stage, on the radio, you hear those voices and you say, hey, that that 
that's me. That, that is someone who is like me. I can move in that direction. Do you have an early memory of, of one of those artists that, that opened a door for you without even knowing that they'd oh. opened the door? Absolutely. Um, and one, the musician I didn't mention that I will also be covering, probably one of the most influential musicians for me um, started around when I was in middle school, um, so about, you know, 26 years ago or so. Um, and that's Ava Cassidy. Oh, nice. Ava Cassidy. Yeah. yeah, she was a huge, huge influence on me. Um, just the, what her vocal vocality could do. She was also kind of um, a queen of covers of, as well. And she was just this powerhouse for me growing up. And I have a big voice, and I didn't always necessarily know how to use my big voice. And hearing this beautiful woman just share her passion and range for um, singing really inspired me as a musician. So, yeah. absolutely. Morgan, tell me a little bit about some of the synergy that you're hoping, you know, the serendipity of, of getting women and trans women into the room, um, opening up the microphone, opening up the stage, and then just having those conversations that are not performative, but can be life changing. Yeah, so I am so excited to, we did have one other event in Sioux Falls last month, and um, we had a singer songwriter circle. Nice. Um, this one is a little different. We're going to have five total performers and I just, it runs the gamut of styles. And like I said, people that have never been on a stage besides playing open mics before. And it's the people that come up to me to say, I am trans. I haven't come out yet. And I want to find my voice. And I'm so excited that you have this mentorship program because I feel like it is going to help me find myself and it just opens a dialogue in so many different ways um i didn't realize for example that this organization was going to be uh, so influential for trans and non-binary youth and so not only i think this showcase we're going to be um uh focusing on all musicians that identify as female um specifically to female but um that doesn't mean that even though they're, they're the focus, there are so many people that show up that yeah. see a place for themselves. Yeah. And especially youth, I just think it's so important. And um, in terms of like transgender youth, there's so much attack in our state right now. So having a space for people to explore creativity and feel literally heard and seen is just right. so amazing. You have your voice heard and seen. That's amazing. The Women Musicians Showcase by the Women in Trans Musicians Network Thursday, 6 p.m. It is at Abe's in Rapid City. 